Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. Romans chapter 8, we learn about this glorious freedom that we can have because of the work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We further learn that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us and that Christ condemned sin in the flesh. There's no condemnation for me anymore. But now, as I live this new life and I venture out in the, the new covenant Paul, nevertheless, gives me an ultimatum. And he says on the one hand, yes, God has done everything for you. But on the other hand, you will have to set your mind on the things of the Spirit versus the things of the flesh. And it's almost as though I play a part in this new covenant journey with God. God did it all. But then I have to mind it all. That is, I have to set my mind, lean my mind into the things of God. Paul says that if I set my mind onto the things of the flesh, that I will experience death in my walk with God. But if I lean into the things of the Spirit, then I will experience this rich life that God has procured for me. And furthermore, I will experience peace and friendship with God. And I will just come into the experiential realities of all that Christ accomplished. God did it all. But I still have to choose. I have to engage. I have to set my mind. That is, lean my mind, adjust my mind onto the things of the new covenant. And that's what this message is all about. The spiritual life is, of course, all God. It's all grace, all spirit. It's all of God. But if I want to experience that reality, then I will have to learn to mind the things of the Spirit of God. I will have to consecrate my heart consecrate my thoughts. Otherwise, Paul says, I'm going to be an enmity against God and at best, I will experience death. Beloved, as we grow in the spiritual life and as you are becoming a spiritual man and woman of God, then it cannot be without your engagement. Again, the engagement of your heart and the engagement of your mind towards the things of God. You cannot just mind God on a Sunday here and a Wednesday there and a little morning devotion here. We, we, we learn to mind God as a way of life. And that is what Paul is after in Romans 8. So come with me and let us explore Romans 8 verses 4, 5, and 6 just a little bit. This issue of setting our mind onto the things of 
the Spirit. Paul now, in his presentation of life in the Spirit, will actually draw a line in the sand and gives you a little bit of a conditional option here. It's as though the gospel requires partnership from you. God did it all on your stead. God did it all in your stead. But for the appropriation of God's work, it requires your participation. And I've observed in Christian circles at large, just generically speaking from South Africa to the continent of North America, very few of us are actually taught how to participate in the gospel, how to participate in this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's almost as though many of us get saved in the name of Jesus. We confess the name of Jesus. But then we are back under these precepts, under these commandments. Do this, do that, do this. But we never learn to, in a way, touch the Holy Spirit in my new regenerated spirit. We never learn how this heart that was given to me, the heart to love God, this heart to be single to God, this heart to be consecrated, it's, it's as though we never address the issues of what occupies my heart. Is there still worldliness in me? The love of self, the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All these issues have to be dealt with. Why? Because your heart is attached to it. And your old heart wars with your new heart. Your new heart wants to walk with God, love God, obey God. And your new heart is filled with the anointing of the Spirit to walk out the righteous requirement of the law. But your flesh cannot stand to be under the regulation of the Spirit. Why? Because it wants its own will, its own way, its own methods, its own habits, its own comforts, its own control. So your flesh is absolutely at war with your spirit. And there's a condition with this gospel. You are absolutely able to live a free life, an overcoming life, a life in intercession with the spirit, a life of a victory, a life of, of the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in you. But you will have to partner and give yourself to it. You will have to grow in it, walk in it, uh, mind it. I want to tell a story regarding the issue of consecration. You, in the early years of your walk with God, in the first year or two or three, I would say, God will deal mostly with the issue of your heart. Whether that heart is divided, mixed, contaminated, impure, 
And the Holy Spirit will want to work with that new heart He gave you. And He put that love of God within your new heart so that everything in you wants to be attracted and single and towards God. And you, you have to cooperate with that. And so the word that I use is the word consecration. Consecration is just to be single, to be one-track minded, to be devoted. A priest in the Old Testament, for example, was consecrated. A king was consecrated. That is, for the remainder of his life, he's going to be a priest. For the remainder of his life, he's going to be a king. He was dedicated, set apart, consecrated. And that's really what has to happen to our hearts. We have to be consecrated. So a quick story to make my point as to the urgent work of the Spirit in our younger years to become consecrated, at least in our heart. Years ago, when the iPad came out, I wanted an iPad. Judge me all you want. I thought that if I could get an iPad, um, I could now type at home. I could try to catch up on emails. And I thought the invention of the iPad was a great thing. And I really thought this could be a tool in my tool belt for my hectic life. And so I heard that there was a minimum supply and you have to get to the store at the crack of dark and stand in line. So lo and behold, it's the first time I've ever done this. I got up like at three in the morning, had my winter clothes on, and I stood in line at an Apple uh, retail store for the doors to open up at 11 in the morning so you can jump in there and grab one of these iPads. And um, my wife gave me permission. I felt the Holy Spirit say, go for it, son. This is a tool. Go buy this thing and life is going to be better. So there I am. It's pitch black dark. There's a line like 12 miles long and I'm halfway in that line. I'm going to get an iPad this morning. So standing next to me um, is a young man and we begin to have a conversation. Come to find out he's a youth pastor in a particular city that is experiencing an enormous revival among the youth. And he went off as to what God is doing in their midst. And I just stood there absolutely drooling, wow. A move of God is breaking out in this particular city. This youth pastor needed an iPad. I'm a kind of a pastoral figure. I need an iPad. So we had an immediate camaraderie. And uh, he goes on to say how they ship these young students in with buses. And on a Wednesday night, about 3,000 young people would come together. And the minister would preach, a kind of an evangelist type of figure. He would preach... And just thousands of kids would come and ex accept the life of God. That is, they would give their hearts to God, as we would say. And, uh, and I'm listening to this thinking, oh, wow, revival is breaking out. This is amazing. And he kept making much of numbers. Thousands, thousands, and thousands, and thousands. And it's growing, and it's thousands. And I'm very impressed to be just honest. Then came the dreaded question. After he shared this marvelous testimony, he asked me, so Francois, what kind of ministry are you involved in? <laughs> it 
And it was one of those embarrassing moments where I lost face. Because he's talking about thousands. I work with like 20 on a good day. And y'all, confidence in me, pride in me for my ministry of ministering to 20 people, it just, it was not there. I didn't feel great about legacy in that moment. Because we do not bust people in by the thousands to come hear the spiritual life at Legacy. At best, there's 20 people here. And I had such a timidity. I felt embarrassed for the work at Legacy because there's like 20 people. I could not explain to him. I didn't want to explain to this young man what I'm doing because compared to him, I'm a dismal failure. And I mumbled a couple of sentences. I'm like, uh, yeah, my school is for the elite. My school is for the real guy and woman who wants to go the extra mile. And y'all, I try to spin this thing as, as, as best as I possibly could to make my 20 people who come to Legacy look like a revival. But compared to their ministry, this is just a failure. So I mumble a couple of words of just embarrassment. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> well, I, I got this ministry and, and it's awesome. And then he asked a question I had never been asked up until that time. And it really took me by surprise. I'd never prepared for answering such a question. He looked me in the eye and he said, Well, Francois, what is your definition of ministry success. I barely get 20 people from around the world at Legacy. They're busing 3,000 people in in one city. Obviously, revival is breaking out, and you can't deny God's breathing on that. God's hand is there. But I do feel like God's hand is with us. God's hand was with Jesus and His 12 disciples. I beat Jesus many times. I got 20 people. He had 12. Yay, God. But He asked me this question and I just... When you lose face and when you stumble and you're, you're arrested, so to speak, you turn to God as best as you know how and you call upon the name of the Lord. And you say, oh God, help. That is Hosanna. Save me now. Deliver me. Rescue. Equip. Speak through me. Give me wisdom. Like you can utter that kind of a request by just saying, oh Jesus. So he asked me, what is your definition of ministry success? And I remember just blinking my eye for a minute, just saying, God, if ever I've gotten a download from you, now's the time. Help a little bit over here, you know. Could you leave the rest of the world for just a minute and please, right now, help? And I think God did. He who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I felt God immediately speak through me. And I just blurped this out. And I said, well, I suppose ministry success could be, might be, that if the people I minister to maintain a lifelong consecration to God, 
I never scripted that sentence. I just blurted it out. I suppose this could be success if the one or the thousand maintain a lifelong dedication, a singularity, a devotion, a worship, a un, an undivided heart, an unmixed heart, a pure conscience and heart. To, that's what I mean by consecration. I blurted out the sentence, I suppose a lifelong consecration to God. Just like that, the young man, the pastoral man, the man ministering to the people of God, the pastor that is supposed to lead us as young people into the work of the Spirit, into the work of the gospel, into the work of a single-mindedness to God. This young pastor asked me, what do you mean by consecration? I've never even heard of that word. And that's when I knew young pastor and I are not on the same paradigm. We don't have the same perspective. For him, the perspective is revival. It's thousands. For me, the perspective is one, two, ten. doesn't really matter. The issue is, is your heart singular to God? It was not but less than a year after that 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 entire revival fell into shambles because its leaders went astray. Their heart is going to lead them down a certain path. Wherever your treasure is, there is your heart. If your treasure is notoriety, your heart's going to walk you to that ego that idolatry, that self-absorbed kind of a lifestyle, and you're going to crash and burn. It's just a matter of time. In a way, Paul is putting an ultimatum before us. God did everything to clear your record. God, by His Spirit, can write the righteous requirement of the law into your being. You can now walk with God. You can be married and betrothed to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul uses the metaphor of a husband and wife and betrothal as did the prophets in, in relation to God. That is to be singular. And the things, unfortunately, that steal our heart is our habits, is the world, the pride, the ego, success, notoriety, money, stuff, relationships, etc., etc. There are all little treasures that if you give enough attention to it and your heart gravitates to it, your feet's going to walk towards it and just give it time. You will crash and burn. So Paul gives us a little bit of an ultimatum. If the things of the Spirit is to realize, then you will have to mind the spiritual things. You will have to employ some effort. This is not an issue of salvation anymore. Salvation is now dealt with. God condemns sin in the flesh through, through Christ's crucifixion. The issue of the law is fulfilled in you. This is now a case closed. It's no longer an issue of getting right with God or getting saved or getting the new life. That's a done deal. Now we're talking about walking in the Spirit. There is a condition. You mind the Spirit, then these things will now be substantiated. They will become real, efficacious. 
But you keep minding the flesh. And by the, by the way, he's talking to Christians in Rome. He's not talking to ungodly people who have not yet met God. This letter is written to Christians. And he says to a Christian, you can in one way walk in the Spirit and in another way continue in your old way of living. In essence, if you walk in Spirit, the stuff that I'm describing will be realized. They should realize. If you walk in the flesh, you'll continue to struggle with this issue of the gospel. So I want to um, bring to your attention now the following few verses, how Paul is now basically inviting you to partnership. He is from chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 8. He's laid it out, all that God has done for you. All that He has procured for you. And it's not just an issue of now I can just kick back and say, okay, Sarah, Sarah, what will be, will be. Let's just sin so that grace can increase. Let's just go on with our old life. Now Paul really gets to it in chapter 6. He says, no, present yourself now to this life of righteousness. Present your body as an instrument, as a kind of a temple, a vehicle now to the things of God. Here he comes in chapter 8 and he says, give your mind to the things of God. Like... The Lord spoke to Joshua there in chapter 1. He says, meditate on these things. Give yourselves entirely to the law and then you will have good success. You'll prosper. It's, it's similar now. You are in the law of the Spirit of life. You are in a new covenant written in Spirit in your heart. You are now in the love of God. Now meditate on these things. Mind it and give yourself entirely to it. When a woman gets engaged and a man, one to the other, they begin to now give themselves more to one another. If ever they were focused, it intensifies. This is now what Paul is trying to say. Partner for the intensification and the application and the experience of all of these many things that I'm describing. So in Romans 8 verse 5, he writes it as follows. He says, For those who are according to the flesh, mind the things of the flesh, In contrast, those who are according to the Spirit, they mind the things of the Spirit. So in a way, he describes two natures here. Two predominant forces in our lives, if you will. The nature, the force of the flesh and the nature or the force of the Spirit. And for the next many sentences, he will capitalize on the tension between these two. First, he says, those who are according to the flesh, mind the things of the flesh. What he's trying to describe here is that those who are in the nature of the flesh, they cannot help themselves but to 
pursue fleshly things. It's their nature. It's their DNA. In other words, it's their kind. It's their kind. You might say, it's their constitution. It's the core and very fabric of their being. They are of the flesh. They are according to the flesh. It's, it's their nature. So it's their lifestyle. It's their habits. It's their sphere in which they live. They live in the sphere of the flesh. This principle, beloved, is already established early on in the book of Genesis. An apple tree produces apple trees. Lions produces lions. Cattle produces cattle, etc., etc. Why did God tell us all those little sentences and fish and cattle and creeping things after its own kind? It's so that we can begin to understand that the nature of something can only reproduce according to its own kind. That's why I absolutely repudiate uh, evolution. Evolution basically says the nature of something can change. In the Genesis principle, the nature don't change. The nature stays contiguous throughout. Cattle produce cattle. Men produce men. So Paul picks up on that thought, this principle that kind produces after its own kind. And so he says here, those who are according to the flesh, that is, yeah, those who are of the flesh, of the nature of the flesh, those who are of the world, of the ego, of the self, of pride, this is just what they mind. In contrast, he says now, those who are according to the Spirit. So, those who are of the nature of the Spirit, those who are of the kind of the Spirit, those who are of the DNA of the Spirit, they will mind the things of the Spirit, kind after its own kind. In John chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. If your predominant nature is flesh, then all you can produce is flesh. It's not surprising when fleshly people commit fleshly acts. I used to be very much surprised, like, oh, they just did this. But then I've come to understand, no, it's not surprising. It's just natural. The flesh produces the flesh. Again, when humans copulate, they produce humans. But things turn around now. And Paul basically says, the same is true in the spiritual life. If you're born of God and you are according to God, you are of God, then 
what's going to come out of your life is the fruit of God. We may even call it the fruit of the Spirit. So hold your Bible here for just a second and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to show you just this phrase, being of God. As much as I can be of my parents, of the flesh, of the culture, I can also now be of God. And Jesus most beautifully explains how can I be of God. I have to have a new birth. If I'm born again, and I am born from the heavens, from above, I am of God. If you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, you'll see how beautifully Paul describes this idea that I can be of God. Initially, I'm of my parents, of my culture. I'm of the flesh. So I mind the things of culture, the things of humanity, the things of flesh. Now Paul says, wait a minute. You can also be according to the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Notice carefully. But of Him... You are in Christ Jesus. Your Bible may say, from Him, you are of uh, of Christ Jesus. So I am from my parents. I can be from God. I can be of man, but I can also be of the Spirit. So, So how is this possible, you would say? Well, beloved... It's because within you there is a spiritual capacity. Deep within you there is this mystical thing called a human spirit. There is the Holy Spirit that can breathe into your inner spirit and make it alive. Your inner man can be born just as your outer man was born. So I'm beginning to see things between the lines here. That your human life and how it was born of your parents is a prophetic suggestion of my spiritual life being born of God. So Paul is teaching the new birth here in subtle form. You can be of flesh. You can be of God in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to John's Gospel chapter 1. John is going to say the same thing in a little bit of a different way. John chapter 1. And uh, let's pick it up there in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God. To those who believe into his name. In verse 13 he's going to describe these children these sons and daughters of God. And so there's a little bit of a clarification. How did they come to be? How did these sons and daughters come upon the scene? He says in verse 13, they were begotten, that is, they were birthed, not from blood, as is, you know, fleshly births, 
They were begotten not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were begotten from whom? Of? Say it with me. They were begotten of? So yeah, Paul is teaching a kind of a birth situation here. I can be according to the flesh. I can be of the flesh. But I can also apparently be of the Spirit. And here then is the condition for experiencing the things of God. You cannot experience the things of God through the natural faculties. You cannot experience the things of God when you lean into your own understanding, your own observation, your own intellect, your own emotional capacity, your own feelings, your own analysis, your own calculation. The things of God cannot come to this dimension of your being. That's why God births you again and He begets you out of His will, out of His capability. This is not a teaching here on predestination. This is a teaching here on man's limitation. I can't will myself to be born of the Spirit of God. This is, I'm, I'm limited. This is something of God doing a work. And that's Romans chapter 8 verse 3. God sent His own Son in the likeness of the flesh of sin. And on account of sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here then is the issue. As I am today, I really am a man of two births, two identities. I'm a man of two capabilities. I'm a man of two spheres. A man of two sets of DNAs, if you will. Two natures are warring within me. The nature of man... And the nature of God. I want to press this matter just one step further. Turn to John chapter 3. Since we're here already, turn to John chapter 3. And it's the account that you may well know of Jesus and a Pharisee, a spiritual ruler, a person who's supposed to shepherd and pastor the people of God into the things of God. And I want to highlight the word new birth for you for just a minute. Um, it says here in verse 1, Nicodemus, he's a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2, he comes to the Lord by night. He says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that have come from God. You're teaching really good things. You're teaching new things. Obviously, you must be from God. And he says, furthermore, you do all these signs and wonders. You have to be from God. You can't be from Israel. You can't be from culture, from man. You must be from above. <laughs> You're an alien. Okay, that was a joke, everybody. Okay. You're not from here. Obviously, you're from God. You're outside of our domain, our sphere. Okay, so... He's really paying attention to the Lord's teachings and the Lord's signs and wonders. And it's almost as though Nicodemus is saying to the Lord, what are we missing? 
since you speak so good and you do these wonders, what, what else am I missing? What more can I do to work the works of God? Maybe Nicodemus is saying to him, what more can I do to be in the kingdom of God? And this kingdom you're describing, tell me what to do. You're a teacher. You, you do signs and wonders. What's on God's mind? And Jesus is going to describe to him, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And I want to focus on that phrase for just a minute. So verse 3, he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again. That word, born again, is probably translated born afresh in your Bible, or maybe even born anew in your Bible. But who has it in their Bible where it says you are born from above? That's awesome. From the Amplified Bible then, probably. Because that's the original Greek word. We put into it born again, born afresh, born anew. But the actual Greek word is born from above. From a realm outside of time and space. That is, you are of God. This is just mind-bendingly amazing that even as I am of my parents and according to them in their likeness, I apparently can be of God from above. So Paul now in Romans 8, he wants to capitalize on this issue that the spiritual people are not common, ordinary, earthly, fleshly, cultural, Jew, Gentile, male, female. You're from above. That is, you're begotten straight out of the bosom of God. You're begotten out of the love of God. Your spiritual capacity to live is from another realm. Now, here will be the tension. He preached the gospel. He wrote out this whole uh, A to Z of this wonderful good news. And here comes the condition. You can experience this when you begin to mind the birth of the Spirit more than the minding of the birth of the flesh. Come read it here. Romans 8, look at verses 4. He says, This law is fulfilled in you, this righteous requirement for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the... And then he goes on, he says, for if, you, if you're born of the flesh, from below, from this realm, then it's just natural to do the things from below. No problem there. It's just kind after its own kind. But now he comes, he says, oh man, you're actually no longer just of the kind of man. There's another kind in you, and it's the kind of divinity it's the kind of Almighty God Himself. It's the nature, not of just human frail DNA. It's the very divine DNA of God. Eternal life is now in you. So look at verse 6. He comes now and He says, For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind that is according to the natural the human, the affairs of this world below. What will you experience if you're minding this dynamic? 
death. Death. So can a Christian actually experience death again? Many of us do. And what death is he describing? This law of sin and death that alienates me from God, that separates me from God, death that shuts my heart down, death that shuts my mind down, death that shuts my actions and habits down and and locks it up in this domain of death called the flesh. So he comes out and he says, for those of you in Rome who receives my letter and you read my version of the gospel, my presentation and interpretation of the gospel, if you go on to live as Romans, if you go on to live as just people of this world, you will not experience this life-giving gospel I just presented to you. Boy, how true is that? So something has to shift in my being where even though I am born of the flesh and my body wants to go this way, there's no doubt about that. And you don't have to be ashamed to say, my body wants to go this way. That's common to all of us. That's not unique to you. That's not unique to me. All of our bodies wants to go this way. Why? Because it's trained this way. And there are centuries and centuries and centuries of DNA that's been deposited within me that just want to go this way. It's so natural. A man who sins, don't be hard on him. It's just natural. It's just what we do. That's why they invented the Nike sign. Just do it. It's natural. But here's what happens. All of a sudden, there's a new law within me that makes me alive unto God. This death derails me, rabbit trails me, mixes me all up. And so in this dynamic here, The things of God of freedom and life and peace and energy. This above reality that becomes real in my daily living. It does not realize. Because it cannot realize in this dynamic. It just just breeds death. So I'm not supposing Paul is talking here of eternal death. Because we know in Christ Jesus, I have been released from eternal death. But he's talking about a lifestyle. And how true is this, that when you keep minding the natural way of things, is it not true that God feels distant? The things of the Bible feels dead. The spiritual life just doesn't work. There's no life and peace in you. What are you experiencing? You're experiencing death. So that's why he says, those who now set their minds, they lean in, they meditate constantly. They give energy and focus and attention to the things of the flesh. No wonder they're going to experience death, separation, God's voice being dim, the word being dark and closed and boring, the things of the spiritual life nonsensical and, as Paul would say to the Corinthians, even Silly and foolish. But notice in verse 6 how he draws a contrast. He says, those who set their mind, because they're of the Spirit, 
They're from the Spirit. They're begotten of God. So there's a new DNA in them, a new nature in them, a new realm that they can explore. Now you have to engage your mind. And you set your mind according to spiritual things. That is, you lean into the truth on this side, not the truth on that side. And you don't set your mind into it to understand it. You set your mind into it to agree with it. This idea that when we lean into the Spirit, we're always going to understand everything, that's not true. You set your mind to the things of the Spirit, not to understand, but to agree with that truth. There's many things in God, beloved, I have no clue why it is the way it is or how it works. I've just learned to say, Amen. That's something that I pray uh, you would develop in your life. Don't worry about understanding. Worry about agreeing. And this is Paul's contention. So he says, Set your mind. If apparently you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, then he gives you two initial experiences here. Experience number one, life. Experience number two, peace. This life is not the life of the natural man. This is the life of God's own being that you experience. And with that life is energy and optimism and joy and exuberance and excitement. With that life, there's power. That is the person who believes the things of the gospel and minds the things of the gospel. He'll become more alive, more excited, more energetic. And number two, furthermore, he experiences this amazing peace. And it's interesting because back in that time, the Christians did not live in a peaceful Christian culture. They lived behind enemy lines. They lived under Roman occupation. And these believers actually live in the city of Rome. And we believe they're a mixture of Jewish people and Roman Italian people all living there. And I believe they lived on eggshells. As we understand history, things were not easy for Christians. And so... I can imagine there's anxiety. Will I make it through the night? If I share with my neighbor the things of God, is he going to turn me in to the emperor? I can just imagine the fear, the anxiety among these believers. And Paul says, hey, if you live in the Spirit, if you mind the things of the Spirit, you'll experience even a peace that passes all understanding. He goes on to say, basically, if you are in peril and in danger and the sword is put to your neck, and all of hell comes against you, hey, you're going to triumph. And even if you're led like a lamb to the slaughter, you're going to conquer. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So I believe this word peace that he says here, I believe it's so pertinent to their day, but it's probably just as pertinent to mine. You and I live in a wonderful, peaceful, quasi-peaceful environment. But this is a kind of a confidence 
and an ease and a surety that apparently the spiritual man can experience that the man of the flesh can not. So there's immediately the benefit of being spiritually minded or carnally minded, fleshly minded. Flesh, the things of God shuts down. The things of God has no life and flow and energy. It's dead to you. But on the other hand, give yourself, devote yourself, attune, consecrate to the things that Paul's teaching and watch how you experience the life that he's describing and the peace that comes from God. So step one, mind the spirit. Mind the spirit. But I cannot give you step two. I don't know how you mind the spirit. I believe it's an issue of your heart. In the foregoing verses, the law has been fulfilled in you. The law that's to govern your heart, the law that's to regulate your devotion and your singularity towards God. Well, let that singleness grow in you. That is what it's like to walk in spirit. And watch what happens. 